Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 13th episode of By the Drip. This podcast is about coffee, entrepreneurship, and the people we meet through the amazing story of coffee. I'm your host, David Crosby, founder and CEO of Rosso Coffee Roasters. In this episode, I'm joined by Danilo Lodi. Danilo is a World Barista Championship Certified Judge, brand ambassador for Della Corte Espresso Machines, and a coffee consultant in Brazil. Danilo has been in the specialty coffee industry since 2004. What? Was it even specialty then? Anyways, we talk about how he got his unique start in the coffee industry, how traveling the world for coffee competitions has changed his view of what coffee can be, and we finish off with Danilo providing great insights on how to taste coffee. I really enjoyed the conversation with Danilo, and I hope you do too. Danilo, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. So you've been uh, a coffee pro for quite a while now. I'd love to go back in time to the beginning of your career and how did you get into specialty coffee? Okay, I'm, I need to go a little bit back, even before coffee, for you guys to understand a little bit. According to my mom, since I was three years old, I was stealing coffee from all the relatives that were visiting at home. So. In Brazil, we have this, this thing that we, we will brew coffee. It's going to be a filter coffee. It, either it's a cloth filter or it's a paper filter, kind of like Melita. And then you, you give it like in kind of like espresso cups. So you don't drink it a lot. You drink it just a little bit. And people will leave like a little bit in the bottom. And my mom said, as a toddler, I will go around all the, the people and check like how was their cup. And I chug it. The, 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 yeah, like <laughs> everything that they have left, I, I was just chugging it. And the other thing that we used to do a lot, like, well, I think people are still doing, like, we will brew a pot in the morning, and then maybe we're going to re- reheat it before the pot that we're going to do after lunch. So we're going to, we'll leave the pot in the middle of the table to cool it down, and then we'll reheat it later. And my mom said that when I was like four or something, I was like on the top of the chair, on the table, like chugging from straight from the pot, all the coffee. Oh, wow. Yeah. Man, and it was amazing. like, amazing. Yeah, and I'm talking about like really low quality coffee, you know, really low. And and it became to a point when I was six, my dad taught me how to use the stove because I wanted to brew my own coffee. Wow. Yeah, and uh, at that point, like the the TV networks were on 24-7. Between Friday to Sunday, they were 24-7, especially Friday to Saturday, Saturday to Sunday, they were the movies. And I would love to spend all the, like, since I'm, I don't have school the next day, so I was watching the whole thing. So I'll brew myself maybe like 300 mils of coffee and I'll fill with sugar and I'll drink it. Like, I'm talking about seven, eight years old. And then I spend the whole night watching movies. Wow. All that to say that I really, I always loved coffee, but I never thought about as a profession. And I started working very early to help my family. When I was like 13, I started uh, working already outside the house. Uh, so I was like studying during uh, the evening, working the whole day, Monday through Friday, sometimes like some works even Saturday and Sundays too. And uh, coffee was a big part of like keep me alive during this time. So I was picking up everything that I, I got my hands on. So I, when I was 15, I did like some computer classes, like I was like a technician, hardware technician, something that we don't have it nowadays like your computer broke and just throw it away like i know i was changing i was changing parts of computers going from a bunch of things like i quit university after a year because i didn't have money to pay anymore so i work a little bit with advertising too 
And then I remember that I got like, I was like super broke and I got a job, a two year contract to work as a computer guy from a, like a major oil company here. And when I left, I got a very good paid leave. I don't know, like when you uh, finish your contract, they, they pay you like kind of like a bonus or something. So I was like not in a hurry to get any job. And that was like 2004. And then I went to a birthday like that I didn't want to go. So I have a friend and his boyfriend say like, hey, let's go to a birthday of my friend from work. I'm like, okay, I don't want, I don't want anyone. I, don't, I barely knew my, uh, my friend's uh, boyfriend at the time. I was like, okay, let's go. I went there and it was actually actually in the girl's house with their family. That's it. Like we are the only not related people or that there are maybe 10 people, three of them not related. And I was like, what the hell am I doing here? So I strike a conversation with her sister and I start talking and talking and talking. And then she got to the point, oh, so you're not doing anything. I'm doing some events as a waitress. If you want, I can give you a ring if something comes up and it's kind of like good pay, just like one night here, one night there. Okay, I give her my number. Next week, she calls me. Hey, do you know what a barista is? And by <laughs> lucky, maybe a month before, I was watching some late night talk show in Brazil. And uh, the first Brazilian champion, barista Brazilian uh, champion, was on talking about coffee. And uh, her name is Isabella Raposeira, the owner of Coffee Lab. And I was watching. Oh, hey, I figured out what is a barista. Yeah, I know. And then, well, we need to do an event with this girl, Isabella Raposeiras. And uh, it's going to be like a two weeks, a very good pay. I was like, okay, so, so it would be two weeks. And I was going to make at that time what I, I was making in a month. So I went there and there was like uh, 11 people waiting for her. I was the only guy, first of all. And we waited there in a, in a roastery, actually in the office of a roastery, that she was going to give the first training for us before the event. And then I remember the guy come in, like, she's going to be a little bit late. Does someone want a coffee? And I just raised my hand. I was the only one raising my hand. And then he got me an espresso. And that was like the first, it was not even specialty. I think it was kind of like fine cup, like 80 points coffee. I'm not going to say dark roast, but medium dark roasted. But it was so different from everything that I tried before. And it was 100% Arabica too. Give it to me. I put like, of course, sugar in it. Drinking, it's like that. That's different. He came back to take it out of the cup, and he was like, "Do you want another one?" I was like, "Yes," because I want to put less sugar in it. Drink it, and after I drink it, like she she shows up. It was a catering event with like kind of like Euro machines and uh, like pod machines, but not pod kind of like Nespresso pod. I don't know if you remember, like Ely used to have like kind of like this the tea bag. Uh, exactly. So those kind of those machines. This bank, I think it still exists in Europe. It's called ABN Emerald Bank. It's kind of like a Dutch bank. They just bought a, like a local bank in Brazil called uh, Real. And then we were doing kind of like for the premium customers. So it's like a different part of the bank that we were doing just for the rich people. And for two weeks, we're going to offer them a high quality coffee, a few drinks based with, and then you're going to talk to them a little bit about coffee, serve them a great coffee to have a great experience for two weeks that every time that they open this kind of like fancy agency inside the regular banks that they have. So that's how I started. And then after a while, I did another bank and then I did another bank, another bank. And after a, a few times that I did a few events like that for Isabella, she asked me, hey, I'm growing a lot. At that point, she didn't have a roastery or a coffee shop. It was just like a consultancy company training and classes. 
So she hired me to be the manager of all those events that were happening around the country, plus helping her on giving classes. At that point, she was a instructor for SCAE, which was the Specialty Golf Association of Europe. And I was helping her giving all the classes. And I, I stayed there until 2006. And I actually remember the day that I started the event. I started the event on 24th of May, 2004. Wow. So yeah, until 2005, I just did events for her. And then 2005, she hired me as a, like a, a regular. And then I left in 2006. And after that, I started doing classes. Like every time I, I got my money straight, I, I could go do some classes. So I did. I, at that point, I didn't speak any English or Spanish. So I started self-taughting myself. Like I'm going to read everything on the internet. I'm going to uh, try to find out how to say something. And because all the material available at that point, there was only two books in Brazil in Portuguese about coffee and one's more for producers. And the other didn't have any techniques about it. There was only kind of like those old recipes, like ice cream with coffee. Uh, right. I don't know, like condensed milk, coffee and whipped cream, stuff like that. So I needed to learn English. So I started studying by myself by 2010. I think I was like already a little bit more confident to maybe start taking classes in another language. And that's how everything started. But that's like kind of like a weird way to start in coffee. Love it. Love it. Yeah. We call it like we call ourselves the people that started in that period, the second generation of baristas, because the first generation was like people that were like already starting in the specialty industry since 2000 until 2002, three. So they started actually the business in Brazil. And then the people that came, the, the, the people that they actually instructed, educated, they became the, like the second generation of baristas in the country, which were very few at that time. So when you're saying second generation, maybe could you describe to the listeners like how you would pull a shot of espresso? Would you weigh you know, the grinds out? No way. <laughs> We're talking about like, so first Brazilian Barista Championship happened in 2002. I started working in 2004. So we will have like a double chamber grinder. So the grinder like that you put the beans, the hop that you put the beans, and then it's going to go to another chamber, which you're going to fill up. And then every time, the, exactly, every time you pull the lever, it will be one dose. And for you to regulate how much it will be in, there was kind of like a screw in the bottom that you go up and down. So like, and there was no accuracy at all for how much you're putting. Uh, so you probably go only for like the grind size, actually. That's where you change the recipe in general. Plus, we were only counting by seconds and by taste, of course, like if it tastes good or not. But we will measure the mLs, not the grams, no scales. There was no scales involved. So we were going to put like a, a, a shot glass and oh, it got it on 30 mLs. Perfect. How many seconds? 25. Yeah, baby. We were rocking. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. The and then we're like thick crema. We wanted like some reddish on top of it. Like Flecking throw a little bit important. of exactly throw a little bit of sugar on top. And if it doesn't settle, like if it doesn't go straight to the bottom, hell yeah, baby. <laughs> so it was terrible. It was terrible. Uh, at blends was all the fuzz, all the fuzz about blends, like no single origin at all. So that was like the, the, the whole thing. And then we, we would divide the coffees by 
light roast, medium roast, dark roast. That's it. So a very simple time, a very different time. So you talked a little bit about training. That's obviously been a big part of your, your story here. I, I was reading you were the first World Barista Championship certified judge from Brazil. Mm-hmm. And this would be in 2010. What was that process like? So w- one of the things like, uh, for example, in 2007, I started doing consultancy for a company called Carry Foods. And they do all the syrups for Starbucks. They have that line, Da Vinci Gourmet, Frappies and stuff like that. And then in 2008, they, like, we, we want to hire you to expand the coffee business in the Southcom. And I was like, okay. But I was like, hey, but I, I competed in 2005 in the Brazilian Barista Championship. Was, was oh, the fifth. Wow. I Brazilian. didn't know that. Yeah, not a lot of people know about it because I'm not proud about it. Uh, <laughs> because first of all, like, so Isabella was training a bunch of people at the same time. She was training like maybe 10 people. And uh, since I was like her lead instructor, I was helping them with everything. So I was going out, buying cups, buying all the garments, everything, and uh, buying milk and buying coffee and doing everything, uh, ingredients for sick babs and stuff. So I trained, I created my presentation in the, the evening before my presentation. Wow. Exactly. My, my whole routine. And my only thing that I got in mind is like, I just don't want to go over time. That's it. So I actually did it. I, I, I finished it like in 14 something. And it was terrible. Like I, I, I think from 40, uh, there was 45 baristas competing and wow. I ended up in 33rd, I think, 32nd, something like that. So, yeah. But since I didn't prepare it well, I wanted to do it again. And when I started working at Kerry in 20, 2008, I told them, like, hey, I wanted to compete. And they say, like, you can. If you sign with us, you can't. They was like, why not? Because we have a bunch of customers. And you, as a supplier, if you win against them, they will be a little bit mad about it. So we don't incentivize that. But at the same time, they had a war barista judge certify in Illinois. And they say, she's a war barista judge. So we, if you want to, we encourage you to go judge. Like, okay. So that was, I, I started like mid 2008 over there. When it was like January, 2009, I judged the national barista competition. Then I started judging a bunch of regionals. At that point, we have a bunch of regionals in the country. It was more like state championship and stuff. And then... And more and more in 2010, same thing. And then I even went to Argentina and Colombia to judge their nationals so I can gather more and more experience. And then when it was October 2010, I was like, I think I'm ready. I was still a little bit scared about the English part because all the certification and the tests are all in English. So I was a little bit scared, but like, you know what? I'm going, I'm going to try. So I certify as a tech judge. I was the first one in South America actually to be certified. And then after that, I start judging a lot. In 2013, I became a WCE rep, which is a World Coffee Events representative, which I can go to nationals and certify the championships, train the judges, train like kind of like the whole thing and make sure that everything runs smoothly. And because of that, that made me go to places that I never even thought about it, kind of like Kazakhstan, Iran, Russia. I never thought about going to those countries and I went just because of the championships. Wow. Yeah. So the, tr- the training aspect of it, if someone doesn't want to, you know, perform or be mm-hmm. a coach, judging is a great way to expand your palate, to try different coffees, to give a framework. 
I think it's a bunch of things, actually. Like, uh, I, I measure my coffee career as like, a, uh, I was a steady grow, steadily growing from 2004 to 2010. After I started judging competition, especially outside Brazil, it was just kind of like a rocket ship going up in knowledge. Because first of all, you learn a lot from the baristas. If you pay attention in what they're trying to say and what they're trying to present, you learn like tons of it. And it's amazing. I love that. Plus, all the other experience they share with the judges backstage. And then normally those events happen inside kind of like a fair, an expo. With that, we also learn a lot. You talk with a bunch of producers, machine retailers, suppliers, roasters. So all of that is just like a bunch of experience. Plus, normally, it's always like at the end or in the middle, there's some workshop. Someone is talking about something. There comes a champion talking about something else. Like I remember like when I start judging that first championship that I judged in January 2009, the guy who came to help us judge was Stephen Morrissey, the reigning World Barista Champion. So that guy trained me to, to judge barista, latte art, and coffee and good spirits. So that was freaking awesome. So the, the amount of things that I learned from him, spending like five, six days, that was like unbelievable, more than I could learn in a class. So it's really important for me to be involved in championship in some level, either coaching or judging. I think I, it's just like a way to experience coffee uh, differently and learn from different perspectives, for sure. So you've traveled around the world because of judging. Yeah, judging, consultancy, and trainings, for sure. Looking back at all the different championships you've watched and tasted coffee from, is there is there one or two sets that you can remember like that were super innovative or uh, that you always kind of look back on fondly? The thing is, like, I have a, ve- a very nice experience that happened within a month apart, so the WBC started in 2000, right? But even before that, some Nordic countries were doing national barista championships. I think Sweden started in 98 doing barista championship locally. And then I remember like February of 2015, I went to Iran to help them build their first national championship. First, never had anything before. So I see all those baristas like never had contact with this world presenting and then a month later i'm going to one of the oldest scenarios of barista competition that was sweden to judge their competitions so that 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 month in my life was mind-blowing because i remember like in iran people competing with roasted coffee already like when i say roasted coffee, it's kind of like they bought from someone they bought from brands of italy or some brands from spain or even like from a local store where they could source the coffee from the bag already. And I think, wow. I think remember, I remember the only guy who roasts their, his own coffee was the champion. And it was a very old crop. It's kind of like two years old crop. And then I'm going to Sweden. The guys were like using Panama geishas, expensive lots, competition winners and stuff like that. And they have all the skills, all the knowledge. They knew everything about the rules. They went super smooth. They knew what they're doing. You know, the last place in the Swedish barista competition will definitely win the Iranian barista championship. That's the other catch. In Iran, there was like 16 barista, no, 20, 21 barista competing. And there was like a lot of other people that wanted to compete. So if I let it 
it will probably be 50 baristas competing. I went to Sweden, there were six, seven, sometimes eight, depending on the competition. So they're already kind of like tired of competition already. So there was also this other aspect of the game. It was like, people are like, love it. They're like very into, they want to learn. They want to go through here. The other country, they're like, um, already been there, done that. Don't need it to do it anymore. So that was super interesting for me, like to seeing those two things within a month in my life. Uh, I think that was super amazing. Wow, that's that's fascinating that there's such it a is. contrast between the two. Oh, of course, there, there's regional uh, cultural difference. But this particular thing, like judging a competition that was like at that point, like it was 17 years old. And then judging another one that was the first time, that was amazing. So you're from a producing country of Brazil. How yep. does that influence your view over coffee and you travel so much, so you get to experience it so many different places. Mm, so the thing is, I'm lucky. When I started working for Isabella, she was already traveling to coffee expos like SCA, World of Coffee, stuff like that, World Race Championship. She was always bringing coffees from other countries. I remember the two first coffees that I ever tried that were not from Brazil. They were Cuba and uh, Sumatra. Okay. So that were the first, and I remember as soon as I, it's not that they were better than the coffees they were drinking, but they were so completely different. It was kind of like drinking tea and then flavored water. That was the difference between them. And then I was like, I put, I, I set my mind to it. Like, I'm going to try every producing country in the world. I'm going to try coffee from every producing country in the world. I think I got it already. <laughs> really? If I recall. I think I did. I think I did. Yeah, I, I even tried some obscure ones, like I tried coffees from California, I tried coffees from Australia, uh, from Tasmania, some, some very obscure ones. But the thing is, I set myself to not be close-minded about coffee. I didn't want it to be, oh, because I'm from Brazil, the best coffees are from Brazil. I, I didn't want to do that. And at the same time, this attitude made people trust me a little bit more about my opinion when I say this Brazilian coffee is outstanding because they know that I can appreciate coffees from everywhere and I'm not going to favor any Brazilian coffees just because I'm from Brazil. So for me, it's a great experience to have. Like, for example, I'm here, I'm uh, now like I'm in uh, se- the center part of the country and I'm giving classes and I make sure that every time that I come, I will bring some different coffees. So in Three days, they try Kenyans, Ethiopians, a, one Guatemalan, and one Bolivian coffee. And what, what's the feedback usually? Oh, the, it's so different that they, they, like, they don't even know what to think. For example, I gave them a, a Kenyan coffee, and it's so mineral for them that they, they think, oh, this is salty. Like, this is almost like salty. It's kind of like has a little bit of fat like, in it. I was like, yeah, like, it's completely different from the coffees that you're used to. Like, it's a different variety, different terroir, different attitude, different everything. So it, I love to see that. I love to end the same. And I do the same thing when I go to a other producing countries. Like, every time I go to Colombia, I bring Brazilian coffees. Every time I go to Bolivia, I bring Brazilian coffees. Every time I go to Central America, I bring Brazilian coffees. So then, so they can try different coffees too. And I love to share those experiences as well. Like, I remember that every t- uh, first time I went to Costa Rica, I, get, I brought like some very funky natural Brazilian coffee. And they're like, I never taste anything with that, like that fruity and with so much body in my life. 
So that, that, was, that was fun for me to watch people do that. So you've done quite a bit of consulting. What does that look like kind of on a week-to-week or monthly basis? Uh, so the thing is, like, I remember that every time something went wrong with my extraction, I would, I would hear, oh, maybe it's the roasting. Oh, maybe it's the crop. Maybe it's some green bean defect. Maybe it's the machine. Maybe it's the water. Maybe it's the temperature. I was like, you know what? I'm going to put myself to study all those variables. So I started roasting. I started going to farms, understanding the defects, tasting, cupping a lot of coffees, playing with machines. And because of that, I, be, I became this kind of like, I'm not the best of anything, but I know about almost everything, which is kind of cool. And I, I, that's one of the reasons that I still love working with coffee. It's always something new f- for me to learn. So nowadays for me, consultancy, I, I will go sometimes to a roastery. If they're already running, I help them to have a better understanding of the coffees they're buying. So I help them to buy better coffees. And I also help them to create better roasting profiles according to the market that they, they want to reach. Same thing with coffee shops. Like sometimes they hire me to open up with them and help in creating menu. Like if they're going to roast their own coffee, if they're going to buy from some roaster, find out what is the best machine for where they are. Someone that has like a good technical service around them creating menus and stuff like that. And sometimes I, I start, I help a few producers with quality control over the years. So I go there one year, like, oh, they, okay, like this one, like this process that you tried didn't work. I'm not, I'm not on the ground, so I'm not going to tell them what to change. Like, but I explained to them, this coffee tastes like this, this, and this. Probably was a fermentation, probably was like drying, something like that, so they can improve and they, the next year, and then I go there next year again to help them a little bit. I'm also worked very close with Dalla Corte for the past seven years. I help them uh, with trainings, and uh, sometimes they call me to help them like in the testing some machines that are developing prototypes and stuff like that, which I love it because you you can get your hands and stuff that is not even technology that is not even available yet, and you can say, oh, we need to change this thing. Like this is not working. This is working very well. We need to. Maybe talk a little bit more about that. So I really like that too. And because of my judging experience, because I I think that I judge around more than 100 competitions worldwide, like uh, around Brazil. That's unreal. Yeah, around Brazil, regionals, local competitions and uh, Warbirds championship stuff. Uh, and all the, uh, of course, and I'm talking about all the championships. I'm talking about uh, Coffee and Good Spirits, Latte Art, uh, Roasting Championship. So the thing is, because of that experience, a bunch of competitors start asking me to help them. The first one that I helped was Yara in 2010. She was like, oh, can you come here and judge me and give me the scores? I was not even word certified yet. So I'll give her the scores like this. And then she would change stuff like that. And then in 2012, Raul from Guatemala say, can you help me? Like I need, and then, but he, since we are friends, I was like, okay, I need to help you with, uh, like, and he was like, can you help me? Uh, rebuild the sick bath. What do you think about the way that I'm serving the cappuccino? What do you think about the cups? So I help a little bit deep down in his presentation. And from that on, a bunch of people start asking me to help them with competition. That's why like the past uh, two World Brewers Championships, no, three World Brewers Championships, I didn't judge because I was helping someone. Like 2018, I was helping Ronald from Colombia. 2019, I was helping Martha from Brazil and Cole. 
this year, well, last year, I was helping Boran and Garan from Brazil in Brewers and Barista. I give a little hand to Matt and I give a little hand to Hugh Kelly to just in the finals to taste their coffees. So that's why I've been, I'm not being judging for the past few years in the world. This podcast is sponsored by Rosso Coffee Roasters. You can check out the Home Coffee Plan subscription on the website, www.rosocoffeeroasters.com. This week's subscription coffee is from Chiapas, Mexico, from the Cup of Excellence winning farm, Santa Cruz. It's a naturally processed coffee, and it's just outstanding. I'm drinking a cup of it right now, and to me it tastes like a bit of stewed blackberry and milk chocolate. So your perspective is quite unique. What would you say is the most difficult part of the supply chain? Is it growing coffee? Is it roasting coffee? So the supply chain, so the, depend on what you think it's the most difficult part. If you're thinking about bringing you more troubles, it's probably producing. Just by example, giving an example of Brazil last year, that a few farmers lost 100% of their crops for the frost. So that's like hell. And uh, because like uh, 2013, I remember that we have like a massive amount of coffee rust invading Central America. And I met farmers that lost 90 to 100% of their crops in El Salvador, for example. So you are very out there and you don't know how much you're going to grow. You don't know how much you're going to harvest. You're not in control of any weather situation. So it's the, the, the ones that it comes with more problems for sure. That's my opinion. But as an individual, in my opinion, one of the individuals that got worst part of the end is the barista. And I, I saw that clear. I've been talking about this for years. And being from a producing country, people tend to disagree with me. They like, like, no, the producers, they have a hard life. I totally agree. I totally agree that they have a hard life. It's hard. Sometimes they barely make a living. So does the baristas in producing countries too. And uh, in this pandemic, I could see clearly that. And I, as, I, as I say to a few people, hey, if something like the frost this year happened to me and I don't have any income to move forward, to replant everything, my worst case scenario, I'm going to sell my land. Mm. Even if it's the lowest price possible, but at least it's going to buy me a month or three so I can figure it out something and go work with something else. If something like the pandemic happened and I'm working in a country that is not going to give me any help, the government is not going to give me any help. If I'm sent at home, what I'm going to do, sell my pitcher, my yeah. temper, my apron. What am I going to do? I'm not going to do anything. I'm lost. I'm lost. So I, I always say that people, people look at the barista. They look a lot of, I think a lot of roasters and producers, they look at the baristas and then they look at those guys in the world barista championship. That's not reality. Look at the, local specialty coffee shop for the guy that's just starting or the guy that's like a year or two into specialty coffee. The reality is completely different. How has COVID and navigating COVID in Brazil and then you personally, because you used to travel, you know, 30 weeks of the year and now travel's gone to zero. So what has COVID or the pandemic for you been like the last 20 months? 2020, it hit me like a bullet train. I, I was able to actually make to Japan in end of February. Uh, I actually went to Dubai for three days, then Japan for 10 days, 
came back, and three days later, I went to Toronto. And I remember that at that point, Toronto had eight cases of COVID. No deaths, just eight cases of COVID. And I went back and everything started like locking down every country. And I had, I remember, I think, I think I had something around like 22, 23 trips scheduled. And they start canceling like one after the other, one after the other, one after the other, one after the other. And I started going insane. Like, uh, I, I was, it was the year that I said, like, I need to stop a little bit of this insanity of traveling that I'm doing for the past 10 years. But I didn't expect to be that abruptly and that, like, I wanted to have, like, at least maybe two weeks at home and then travel again. But there was, like, nothing. I think my first international trip after March 2020 let me see if I remember. I think it was to Portugal right before WBC in October. That was my first international trip. So a year and a half. Yeah, year and a half. I, and, and it almost drove me nuts because, first of all, my source of income just ran out because I'm a consultant. I don't have like a... Nowadays, like since January of last year... I'm a business developer for Dalla Corte in Latin America. But before that, I didn't have any regular income. So I scrapped all of my savings to get afloat in uh, 2020. And because of the savings that I had and the previous job that I had, I didn't apply for the little bit of money that the government was giving to people that were at home. So even that got me screwed over. So it was a very, really difficult year. Like I think just by December of 2020, I started giving consultancies again, but just locally in Brazil. And how has it been on the, the coffee market, like cafes in, in Brazil and, and farmers? A lot of coffee shops closed their business during the pandemic, unfortunately. Weirdly enough, a bunch of new ones opened, which th that was weird for me. Like I remember like when we were like starting to get better and like a lot of people calling me, Hey, do you know anyone that wants to work? Do you want, uh, where should I buy this machine? Do you know, like who should I source coffee from? Like, what the hell? Like you're opening a coffee shop. Like <laughs> we're still not over this and people are opening coffee shops, but I think there are more coffee shops getting closed than opening new ones. Roasters as well. They're, they're like heavily affected. The ones that didn't navigate it well about like, I'm going to do some like cheaper specialty coffee to sell to people that stay at home. And that thing didn't last long. A, lo a lot of people at the beginning of the pandemic were buying coffee beans, coffee bags to make it at home. But after a while, that uh, it was like something not essential. So people start not buying anymore. Like, you know what? I'm going to buy the cheap ass regular coffee from the grocery store and I'll buy my uh, uh, $20 kilo coffee anymore. So that's when things start changing a little bit for roasters too. Producers, they did fell a little bit, but not much from, my, from what I heard from them in 2020 because they did have previous agreements of selling the crop. And plus, because of the pandemic, the exchange rate skyrocketed. Mm. So they made more money in the 2020 crop than they, they made in the 2019 crop, like like maybe 60% more just because of exchange rate. Of course, the inflation went up, but still maybe they their profits went up for like at least 30% from a year to the other just because of the exchange rate. So they did not got like uh, in a bad position last year. 
uh, so the 2020, sorry. Last year, they got a little bit hit, but that was not because the pandemic was more because of the frost. Right. But again, the, 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 the C market, the coffee regular market, the New York stock market went up. So even the cheapest coffee that they have, they made a lot of money out of that too. And the exchange rate is still high here. So maybe you could touch a bit more on the C market. We have quite a few mm-hmm. non-coffee people that listen to the podcast. So if you could explain what the C market is really briefly, and then, and then the context of how that affects so many people in Brazil, either in a positive or negative light. I think it affects everybody that works with coffee in a world period. I'm going to try to explain, you know, those guys in Wall Street and all the other stock markets in the world that they decide if some currency are strong, some currency are not because of like political things and maybe current events and stuff like that. It's the same thing with commodities. C market, it stands for commodity and coffee is one of the commodities that are trade in the New York stock market. The value of the basic fee of a bag of coffee it's made by the C market price. I think it's per pound that they evaluate. So because it's in New York, of course. So the market, it's always based like per pound of coffee. And that's the base of negotiation of a very average to low quality coffee, the commodity ones that we found in the grocery stores. So because of supply and demand, that price vary from time to time. So for example, Brazil is responsible normally for 32 to 36% of the whole coffee production of the world. In uh, 2021, we have like a major frost and it hit a bunch of producers. Like the crops decrease around 20% in the country. And this reflects around 5% of the whole coffee in the whole world. And demand is increasingly growing. So that's why the, the, the prices skyrocket. Besides of that, we have a, a, a conflict in Ethiopia. So coffee is not getting out of the country as fast. Kenya has some political problems too. And that making uh, offer of coffee that we have is lower, but the, event, the demand is still high. So co- price, uh, coffee prices go up everywhere now. So because the sea market base, it's for any coffee in the whole world. So it's the Arabica sea market base. And that became really expensive in the past, I would say, 18 months. And do you believe that's a good thing for coffee producers? I think for the coffee producers, is a good thing in a short period of time, not in the long run. It, it was not... The thing is, it, it's been a while that the coffee producers were complaining that the sea market was too low. And I, and I agree that it should be up and up, but steadily growing, not jumping 50% within a month, within three months, that kind of like happened. And I think this year is going to grow again as soon as people realize how much coffee the, the world's going to produce this year, like, b- b- like based on the forecast that all the producing countries are going to send in, a, in, in the next month or so. So for in a short period of time, it was going to be good because they're going to make more money because the, the minimum value that they're making for their coffee, it's way better than it was before. In the long run, it's going to, disincentivize a lot of people to drink coffee or at least to lower their consumption of coffee because let's face it not a lot of people in the world live in a, like in brazil coffee comes it's a, like a basic need like everybody drinks coffee but it is expensive for 90 percent of the families to drink good coffee and even to drink coffee at all so they're going to lower the amount of coffee that they're drinking at home to not spend money 
in a beverage that it doesn't have any health, how can I say, uh, nutrients for them instead paying for food. So in the, in the short term, it's good for the producers. In the long term, I think it's a disaster for commodity drinkers around the world. Okay, let's switch topics here. Mm-hmm. I was reading that if you hadn't gotten bitten by the coffee bug, you would be a professional martial artist. Ooh, I <laughs> tell, tell us about, is that MMA or is that like karate? What is that? I think, I think if I, I wasn't bit by the coffee bug, I would probably pursue two things at that point in my life. Acting, because I did some drama classes for a few years, but also I really, I always loved martial arts. Although at that, so the thing is, I, I, I trained eight years of karate, Shotokan karate, but at that point, like being a karate champion, I could make like nothing uh, out of it. And being a karate instructor never was something that I was fancy because it's long hours repeating the same lessons over and over again. I didn't want to do that. But at that point, the UFC MMA scenario was starting. So like, you know what? Maybe I'm going to do that. But at that, even at that point, we were talking about 2002, four. it was not paying enough, mm. you know, and to get your face beat it, you know, right. to get punched in the face is not something that I want to make like $3,000 for, <laughs> for an evening. Uh, and then maybe, maybe fight again in three months. So it was something that I actually, I know, let it slide, not now. And, I, and now it's just like kind of like a hobby. I, I train MMA for a year. I train Kung Fu. I train boxing. So it's kind of like just a hobby. Like I really li- like to watch fights. I really like to spar and I really like to train. I love watching your boxing videos. <laughs> the yeah, Brazilian Mike Tyson. <laughs> no, no way. Not but m- more like I'll say maybe a smaller Tyson Fury because like okay. I'm tall and like, but way smaller actually but yeah like more kind of like the heavier side (laughs) quite a few coffee professionals listen to the podcast if you had a Mm -hmm. piece of advice that you could give them on either palate development or training that they should go and seek maybe q grader what what would you provide them with i would give them two actually two like i was lucky to to have to receive those when i started first of all from now on everything that you drink, everything that you eat, you're going to pay attention to it. So you're going to pay attention to the texture. You're going to pay attention to the flavor that comes in, the f- aftertaste that leaves your, after you finish. If there's acidity, pay attention and how high it is, what kind of acidity it is. If it's sweet, same thing. If it's salty, same thing. Bitter, go over and over again. But be mindful of this. So pay really attention. Even if it's water, pay attention in everything because you will build sensory library in your brain. And even if it's not an accurate one or if it's someone that everybody can relate it, you can relate. Oh, that reminds me of a fruit that I had a few years ago when I was with a friend or even a, like a pie, whatever. It will bring you that flavor. So pay attention in everything that you're going to eat at least for the next 10 years. And the other thing, and that's nowadays more important than ever, in my opinion, it's do not take anyone's word, including mine, as sacred and unbreakable. Something that I teach you today, tomorrow maybe it will be uh, outdated. So I see a lot of people watching YouTube videos, 
Instagram videos, reading blog posts, reading books, and taking, because someone important in the coffee chain wrote it, that's the law, and you don't change the law, you know? They rely on those people to tell them what is the best grinder, what is the best machine, what is the best coffee, what is the best process, what is the best roast. Don't. You learn and you test it. You test it every theory that comes your way. But test it like with uh, rigorously, like you, you need to put some scientific method to your test. It's not like, hey, I saw that, like they, they did this technique on V60, I tried, it didn't work. I tried the other one, it works. No, do blind tests, make a few pullovers, ask people to mix it up, make a mark on the bottom, see what it really likes. Do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. Same thing with grinders, same thing with espresso machines, same thing with co different coffees. Don't let someone say, hey, Bolivian coffee sucks. So I'm not going to buy Bolivian coffee. No, 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 no. Maybe someone that you regard as a very important person in the specialty coffee industry, drink once, didn't like it, and now is talking trash about it. Don't follow that. Go and try a few Bolivian coffees for yourself. You know, oh, that roastery, uh, I, I tried once and I have a bad experience. Try it again. Try next month. Maybe they change the roasting profile. Try the new crop that they have. Don't have preconceptions about anything. Learn, test it, make your opinion yourself. I think that's amazing advice. Where, where do you go to expand your knowledge? Everything. Like I read everything. I read, I read newspapers. Sometimes I even pay for a few university papers that they come out and they're like, oh, I need to pay that. Like, okay, let's pay. <laughs> so I, I love to read university papers. I love to read a few SCA articles that comes out. There are some interesting ones coming in a few other sources like websites, kind of like Perfect Daily Grind, uh, Daily Coffee News. So I like to read those. Some other coffee professionals that I, that I like, that I follow, and I read something about, they post something and they put a link with some cool research I go after. Maxwell, it's one, uh, it's one of the people that I, uh, Maxwell Colonna Dashwood, it, which is a, a British barista. I really like his studies about water and about coffee in general and even coffee pods, their coffee, his coffee pods are amazing. Yeah, like I, I try to follow a few people. And dude, pay attention in what the barista competition competitors are saying. Sometimes they're saying some crazy stuff. And you just go after like Google it, find like, oh, what is this like process they're talking about? What is this technique they're talking about? Oh, I, I never heard about this roasted machine that they talk about. Let, let me check a little bit. And you're going to find a bunch of things. Like I, I think today is easier to find material than... It was when I started, which even in, on the internet, there was like some obscure coffee forums that you yep. could find something, but not websites, not like news outlet devoted to coffee. There was nothing like that. Today that we have in a bunch of languages too, you don't even need to know English to learn about that. Like we have in Spanish, Portuguese, Chinese, Korean, Japanese. So it's amazing. I, I, really, I really like the way that the information is right there nowadays. But too much information can cause those things that I was speaking before. So that's why you need to filter, you need to test it, and you need to make your own opinion about it. What's one thing you believe in that few others in the industry would agree with? Mm. Are we really going there? Come on. Are we really going there? Okay. Damn. Like, you I'm going to be... It sounds like you got a few chalked up, so you can say a I, few. I have. I have a few. I do have a few. So, okay. First of all, the one that is like really bothering me lately, and I'm going to have 
I'm going to be in super bad sheets with the Brazilians, but with a bunch of other people around the world, it's like uh, Robusta is being overrated. Can Canephora, right? Not Robusta is the variety. People correct me all the time. Canephora coffees are being overrated. A lot of people are putting back like this, oh, let's produce high quality Canephora's coffee. And I tried them all. I tried them all. All like the champion, like regional contest champion from countries that supposedly make a, a great Canephorus. And I try them tirelessly. And they tell me, you need to judge this as a different beverage that is Arabica. And I was like, okay, but it's bad. In my opinion, it's bad. It's kind of like comparing like Coca-Cola with a very cheap, low shelf brand Coca from an, like an, a country, you know, like a terrible one that tastes like medicine. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like maybe comparing like a Earl Grey from like very respectable brand from like a, a very low black tea that you find in like in a, in a grocery store for like a dollar, 10 pouches. That's the difference. They are different beverages, but it's not a beverage that I like. And now I have actually even an argument about that. So this year, like last year, I was lucky enough to try a bunch of eugenoides. And again, you cannot judge eugenoides like you judge Arabica. They are completely different species and taste completely different, but it's a very good beverage. You know, it's a good beverage. Yes, of course, I cannot put them in the same category as Arabica's, but it's a beverage that I really enjoy. The Robusta, the best ones, I don't enjoy. I don't want to finish. Interesting. You got another one? Yes, I do. Give us your top three. Damn it. You guys are like, oh my God. <laughs> So I think cold brew is overrated. I rarely, like, I'm not going to say that I never drink one that I like. I drink a few, but mostly they are shit, mm. period. And I think now it's going to be the biggest one because that's going to impact even home consumers. So the thing is, my favorite brew methods to make it at home is the V60. But I have, I'm, in May this year, I'm going to be working with coffee for 18 years. And I do not make a hundred coffees with the V60 at home. And even if I make 10 in the same day, I'd made 10 different coffees. So to my point is, I don't understand why a lot of people use V60 in coffee shops when the V60s are one of the most difficult brew methods to be consistent with. You can go to a bunch of coffee shops to serve V60, drink a coffee in the morning. As soon as the barista shift changes, drink another one from the same coffee it will be completely different. And the tiniest amount of change, it's a huge one in a cup. Mm. So I really don't understand why most of the coffee shops in the world that I go, if they sometimes they have only one brew method, it will be V60. So I don't understand why. So if you could flip it out, what would you flip it to? I will flip it to a clever mm. coffee drip because it's easier. Or even the Hario V60 switch, it's easier. Got any more? Oh uh, yeah, well, I don't like AeroPress. Is that's the most inconsistent <laughs> coffee? That's the most inconsistent coffee method of all. And and the championship, it's only for fun. Mm. So, being being credited as the national AeroPress championship means means nothing to me. I'm sorry, it doesn't. It means that you were having fun. <laughs> yes, it's a at least it's a fun one. Okay, buddy, we got to uh, we're gonna switch to you personally a little bit. What does rest look like for you? Ooh. That's fun. So nowadays, rest for me looks like watching TV shows, maybe a movie or two that I like. I do love to watch UFC too. So like having 
some friends over, drinking some beers, watching fights and talking nothing, like talking about everything, talking about life. I do like to sleep a lot nowadays. And, I, and it's, it's something interesting because until my, my early 30s, I will probably sleep like six hours maximum per night. Nowadays, if you let me, I will sleep 10 hours easily, easily, oh, wow. easily being happy. You know, on the weekends, look, I'm a happy man if I sleep 10 hours. Do you feel like it helps you recover or it's just you love to sleep? doesn't. I just love to be like there doing nothing, which is something that I'll, before I'll be anxious about it. Like, I need to go. I need to live. I need to go outside. No, I, I don't have this urge anymore. I think I did it a lot. <laughs> and I, I really like, like, I like to read something that I'm into. Let's say, for example, like uh, last year I read a lot about astrophysics. Oh, wow. This year I'm reading a lot about boxing. So I'm reading two books at the same time, one from Mike Tyson, the other from Muhammad Ali. So it's like something that is I'm enjoying doing lately, but not related to uh, my job or anything else. But it's funny because normally I can, I always bring something to coffee, like maybe the discipline or someone, maybe the physics of something else. Or sometimes I'm reading like a, a book about the, how the earth was build with the meteors and everything and the earth changes and everything. And, and I'm like, ah, that's why maybe we have some mineral parts of this <laughs> in this coffee area or something like that. But yeah, like that, normally, like I let my mind uh, wander e either through TV shows, some books not related to coffee and sleeping a lot. And of course, drinking some occasional beers and Negronis with my friends. UFC heavyweight championship is next weekend. Who do you got? Yeah, baby. So that's the thing. I think uh, Cyril Gane, uh, the, the French guy, it's one of the most technical strikers in the world. But the other guy hits like a truck. Actually, he, he hits like a, a truck going 50 miles per hour. I think that, that was the study that they did in a lab for sure. It was kind of like a Chevrolet something, 50 miles an hour, which I don't know how many kilometers is, like maybe 80, something like that. Francis... It's the difference, uh, like the punch, the, the strength that they have is the difference between me and Francis. That's the difference <laughs> that they have. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, the, the Siru Gunna can knock Francis out for sure. It can tie him up, can overclass him in technique. Yes, but he needs to stay away for the whole fight because even if he's defending with his hand, with that four ounces glove, if that hand of Francis touched him, it's night-night. There's no way. So I'm picking Francis. Nice. Love it. How much coffee do you drink a day? It depends on the day. Like, I actually, I don't, like, when I'm giving training, when I'm in championship, I can go over, like, espresso-wise, I can go over 30 easily. Jesus. Today, I drank maybe 20 espressos, and I drank at least five filters, like wow. 200 mils cups. At home, sometimes I drink one. So days off, very, very few. Not, not only days off. Let's say that I have a very easy day of work. I don't have a lot of things to do, not a lot of meetings, not a lot of phone calls. I make the, the first one in the morning. Okay. Lunchtime, I have nothing scheduled for the afternoon. Yeah, not, I'm not having another one. Maybe, maybe one after lunch, but that's it. So it depends. It really depends. And there's sometimes that I'm at home and I don't even, I'm, I'm buried in work. And I don't even have time to make coffee, but I don't feel the need because there's, a, there's another thing that is happening to me for the past eight years since I'm judging 
the best baristas in the world and the best coffees in the world. I cannot drink the regular coffee anymore. Like, oh, I have a very good 85 points coffee here from blah, 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 roasted. Like, I like, drink it. Okay. So I separate that bag and I'm going to give it to friends, some friends of mine because I want to drink the shit. I want to drink the top layer. I want to drink like the 90.89 competition lot that I'm going to freeze over and like vacuum seal it and put it over there. And that it's true. Like that's the coffee that I love to drink. So sometimes I'm just like, I'm not drinking just, I don't have any coffee. I don't have a good one. I'm not going to drink just because of the caffeine kick. It's not about that. It's about the flavor for me. So it's like those five minutes where I sit down, enjoy that coffee, pay attention to the flavors. I'd like, that's, that's the beauty for me. So when the coffee is good, dude, I'm like, I'm a beast behind the machine. I remember like there was this Panama Geisha from uh, Best of Panama that I, I was doing in, in espresso. I could not let go. I was serving one for like the people on the, the expo, the attendees, and I was drinking the other, I was serving one, drinking the other, serving one drink because of the flavor. It was not about the caffeine or anything. What's, uh, what's next for the next 12 months? So if everything goes well and this freaking weird virus doesn't bury us all, I will go to SCA in Boston, uh, right? Before that, I'm going to judge the competitions in Chile in March, the Barista Brewers of Latte Art. Probably going to have to go to Uruguay and Argentina too before that. June, we have the World of Coffee in uh, Warsaw, Poland. So if everything goes well, I'm attending that too. And September, World Barista Championship, World Brewers Cup, in Melbourne, Australia, baby. So that's, that's are the commitments that I have right now. And uh, if the pandemic let me fulfill what, that's what I'm going to do. Probably a lot of other things will show up like visiting farms, going to other countries, maybe even after SCA, I need to go to a small town called Calgary in Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. You're always welcome. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know. I still I, need, I still need to check it out what is going to be the plans. But for now, those are the places that I need to be and those are the months. So if you're stalking me, go in those events and then you're going to find me. Okay, buddy, where can people find you online? They can find me on my Instagram, which is at Danilo Lodi, which is D-A-N-I-L-O-L-O-D-I. And uh, you can find me on Facebook too, but I'm barely using. A lot of people are clicking me on LinkedIn, not using to guys not looking for a job, but yeah, Instagram, I think is the easiest platform to find me. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. We'll talk soon. It was my pleasure, buddy. Hope to see you soon. Wow. You made it. Thanks for listening to buy the drip. If you enjoyed the conversation today or found value in it, if you could please share the podcast with friends and family, that'd be so helpful for us to grow the podcast. As always, please subscribe, rate, and give us a comment. That would mean so much to me. Till next time.